0: We we're starting a new series. I love starting new series. Uh, We are in the book of Malachi. Many of you know and I have said we're going to be in the book of Malachi. And some of you have asked every week, are we in the book of Malachi? And I keep saying no, no, no. So today we start. And I'm excited about this. Uh, When I began sabbatical early this summer, I just kind of opened up God's Word and was just asking God, just lead me to where you want me to be for my own self, and then hopefully God would use that then for the good of us all together, and I believe in his good providence he led me to study this book. And the message of Malachi is so important, and it's extremely applicable for us today. So what we're going to do today, today's sermon is going to be the Google Earth view of Malachi. And then the upcoming weeks, we're going to dig into the smaller sections that make it up. So the series title is going to be Confronting Religious Skepticism. And when you think of skepticism, it can be defined as one who either doubts the very existence of God or one who simply doubts his character and promises. And so here in Malachi, Israel is going to be guilty of the latter. They doubt the character and the promises of God. And so what I want to do is I want to begin by giving background. I want us to understand, how do we get to this book? Like, why is it written Why is it in the Bible? What's the message of it? And so, to start off with, we need to know Malachi is what we call a post-exilic prophet. Other post-exilic prophets would be Haggai and Zechariah. And what that simply means is that they prophesied after Israel returned from Babylon. And so, uh, Nebuchadnezzar came in 586. He destroyed Jerusalem, decimated the temple, and deported the people um, from Jerusalem in the southern kingdom and brought them into Babylon. And they spent about 70 years there. In 539 BC, now under Persian rule, Israel was released to go back to Jerusalem and many of them went back. So this fulfilled Jeremiah's prophecy that they would be in captivity, in exile for 70 years. But when they returned to Jerusalem, life was not easy. They had no walls, no temple, no king. They were under Persian rule. In the book of Haggai, we learn that they rebuilt their houses, but they did not rebuild the temple of God. So this is what we read, and I have some of these up here on the screen from the book of Haggai, in case you're unfamiliar and didn't read through that earlier today. So Haggai 1.4 says this, Is it a time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses while this house lies in ruins? So the temple represents the presence of God. It represents the worship of God. And so Israel rebuilt their houses, but they didn't rebuild the temple, so they neglected God. They prioritize themselves, but not the very worship of God who has brought them back from exile. And so God promised that if they rebuild the temple, he would do a great work among them. So we read this in chapter 2, verse 6. For thus says the Lord of hosts, yet once more, in a little while, I will shake the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land. And I will shake all nations so that the treasures of all nations shall come in. And I will fill this out with glory, says the Lord of hosts. The silver is mine, and the gold is mine, declares the Lord of hosts. The latter glory of this house shall be greater than the former glory, says the Lord of hosts. And in this place, I will give peace, declares the Lord of hosts. So God promises that the treasures of earth will pour into the temple of God. Now the glory, and he says the glory of this temple, this new temple, will be far greater than the one Solomon built. If you go back to 1 Kings, you can read about how Solomon built this first temple. And basically, it's a giant building of gold. People from all over the world would come just to see this temple. And yet God says, oh, this new temple will be greater. But that's not all that he promises. In Haggai chapter 2, verse 21, this is what he says. Speak to Zerubbabel. That's a fun name, you know, just saying. You got to practice that one. Speak to Zerubbabel, governor of Judah, saying, I'm about to shake the heavens and the earth and to overthrow the throne of kingdoms. I'm about to destroy the strength of the kingdoms of the nations and overthrow the chariots and their riders. And the horses and their riders shall go down, every one by the sword of his brother. On that day, declares the Lord of hosts, I will take you, O Zerubbabel, my servant, the son of Shealtiel, declares the Lord, and make you like a signet ring, for I have chosen you, declares the Lord of hosts. So what we have here, God is promising that there's a day coming upon the rebuilding of the temple that he will defeat all the wicked, ungodly nations on earth, and there will be one throne left standing. And on that throne will be a descendant of King David, the king of God's people. And so what do you think Israel did upon hearing? If we rebuild this, all these things are going to happen. What do you think happened? They rebuilt the temple. In 516 BC, the temple is rebuilt. But things did not work out like they expected, like they thought. In the book of Ezra, we read that when the temple was rebuilt, the people mourned. They cried. They wailed over it because it paled in comparison to the original temple. And then 70 years later, roughly in 445 BC, Nehemiah comes and finally the walls of this city are rebuilt. But Israel is still without a great Davidic king. They're still under foreign rule. Their temple appears to lack glory. The land is not flowing with milk and honey as it has been promised. They're surrounded by by, um, ungodly nations. And the promises of God are beginning to fade into the background like the setting sun. And as the promises seem to disappear, so does their hope. And so Israel begins to look at their circumstances, and they start to question God. Is he there? Does he love us? Is he really that great? Does it matter if we worship and obey him? It doesn't appear he's faithful to us. Do we really need to be faithful to him? The people's discouragement over their circumstances led them to be disillusioned about God. Their disillusionment led them to doubt the love and goodness of God. And thus Israel has become a skeptical people. Do you see the trajectory? Scourged over present circumstances, disillusioned by God. They doubt God. They become a skeptical people. So, this is the context. And now, which Malachi is writing about 70 to 100 years after the turn of exile in the days of Nehemiah. And now, what we're going to see is that God is going to confront the religious skepticism of the day. And so, what I want to do is I want to invite you to stand. We stand each week at the reading of God's word. And I know in your Bible it says just 1 1, but we will read chapter 1, verse 1 through verse five. So here we go. The oracle of the word of the Lord to Israel by Malachi. I have loved you, says the Lord. But you say, how have you loved us? Is not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord? Yet I have loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated. I've laid waste his hill country and left his heritage to jackals of the desert. If Edom says, we are shattered, but we will rebuild the ruins, the Lord of hosts says, they may rebuild, but I will tear down. And they will be called the wicked country, and the people with whom the Lord is angry forever. Your own eyes shall see this, and you shall say, great is the Lord beyond the border of Israel. Let me pray. Father, Father, I thank you for this book of Malachi. Malachi. And Lord, I pray that as we begin to study this, that your spirit would give us great wisdom today in the upcoming weeks. And you would help us to see the truth and the beauty of this word. You would help us to see how you are sovereign over all circumstances, and you are working all things for the good of your people and for your glory. And that God, ultimately, this book leads us to the understanding that Jesus Christ is our Lord and Savior the one who brings a greater covenant, the one who establishes a new temple, which is your church, which is where you dwell and you promise you will live for all eternity in a new heavens and new earth, where our hope is that, God, you are king and that we who love you will live with you for all of eternity and your justice will be carried out perfectly. So, God, as we look at your book today and as we look at just the overview of it, God, help us to examine our own hearts, May your spirit reveal any sin within it. Show us where we have become skeptical. Slow us, show us where we have begun to slumber in our religion and our faith. God, wake us up that we would live for you, that we would honor you. In your name, Jesus. Amen. You all may be seated. First thing we're going to do, I just God graciously pursues his people so I just want us to see how this book begins. In fact, in Philippians 1.6, God promises that he completes the work that he begins with us. All throughout the Bible, we see that God is faithful. The book of Malachi is going to testify to God's faithfulness. In fact, all 12 of the last books in your Bible, which are called the Minor Prophets, minor just simply means smaller. The major ones are the ones who are like 55 chapters and longer. Um, minor Prophets, they're five chapters. They're 12 chapters. They're smaller books. And all of these books show how God faithfully pursues his people. And so here in Malachi, God begins by reminding his people that he loves them. In chapter 1, verse 2, he says, I have loved you. So this is a book of judgment. This is a book of correction. And yet, we're to read it within the lens of the love of God. In fact... Hebrews chapter 12, verse 6 says, For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. God promises that he corrects, he rebukes, and he disciplines out of love. And so we need to think like a father would come and confront his son. That's what's happening here in the book of Malachi. The father sits his son down on the bed, and then he begins discussing a pattern that he has seen. It begins to raise questions that reveal the decisions that have been made, the arrogant attitude that has been displayed. And all the while, the father is doing this with a heart of love for his son. That's why he's having this conversation. That's why he's pursuing his son at this moment. And this is the same thing that God does to you and I every time we open his word. Every time we open it, God is is correcting, He's confronting us, He's rebuking at times, He's encouraging, and He's equipping us so we would live like His Son, Jesus. And so let's look at, at what this message is that the Father is giving to His Son, that He's wanting us to understand. And we understand it's a weighty message. And that's not me saying it's weighty. That's not me implying something. That's literally what the text says. In verse 1, we read the words, the oracle of the Lord. The word oracle means burden or weight. Other minor prophets like Nahum, Habakkuk, they also will use this word oracle to begin their books. And those are books talking about the judgment, the confronting of God against the people's Oracle is also how Isaiah introduces the judgment that comes upon the nations in Isaiah chapters 13 through 23. So the book of Malachi begins with, this is a weighty message. This is a burden. It's heavy. So by using this, the prophet is turning to the people and says, listen up. I have something to tell you. It's very, very important. You must listen. You cannot ignore it. Heed this message. So let me just tell you a little bit how the structure and the outline of this book goes. As it, Malachi is 55 verses long. It contains 27 questions. So God addresses his people in the first person. And again, think of it like a father addressing his son, sitting him down, and asking him questions. He's wanting the son begin to see a picture of his own heart. So this is what one commentator said. He said, if a rebuke is raised against you, it's easy to brush it off as just a negative, misunderstanding opinion. However should the accusation be raised in the form of a probing question so that your realization of the error of your ways comes from within rather than from without. It's no longer a mere outside misinformed opinion. It's an an opportunity for reflection, self-examination, and repentance. And so here we see the Father, like, like the perfect shepherd, coming and pulling upon the strings of the heart that we would see the sin within our own lives. Malachi is broken up into six disputes or six arguments. In each of these disputes, God is going to address the religious skepticism of his people. Dispute one and six, they deal with the wrong understanding of God. Disputes two and five deal with the wrong worship of God. And disputes three and four deal with wrong relationship with one another. So you can kind of see the pattern in which we're going to make our way through the book. We're going to walk through dispute by dispute through Malachi. Malachi. And what we see is if we misunderstand God, and that's what's happening in verses one through five, if we misunderstand God, we will worship him wrongly and we will fail to love one another rightly. So there's what we need more than anything. We have no greater responsibility, no greater privilege, no greater need, no greater joy than to know who God is. Primarily, that comes through his word each and every morning, through times like this where we corporately come together. But spending time in his word is one of the greatest responsibilities and privileges and joys that we have, that we would know who God is. Because only when we know him will we worship him rightly and love one another rightly as well. And so today, what we're going to do is just kind of take this overview, and we're going to look at the first three arguments that, um, that Malachi gives We're not going to dig all the way into them, but we're just going to briefly look over them, see how the flow of the book moves, and hopefully see what God is also asking us to do in our hearts as well. So if you look at verses 1 through 5, God tells Israel that he loves them. I mean, just think about this. He says, I have loved you, says the Lord. But notice in chapter 1, verse 2, how they reply, how have you loved me? Husbands, I want you to think here. You come home, you hold your wife, you kiss her, you tell her, I love you. To which she responds by stepping back, crossing her arms, how? Prove it. That's literally what, what, what Israel's doing at this moment. You tell me you love me? It doesn't look like you love me, prove it. You see, Israel is trying to understand the love of God by looking at their circumstances. And because things don't look good, they haven't met their expectation, they conclude that God does not love them. But listen, we must never, 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 never seek to understand God or his love by merely looking at our circumstances. The entire scope of scripture teaches that God uses pain, trials, and suffering to accomplish his purposes. Trials are never the absence of God's love, but rather very often they're very means that God is working in your life. I mean, James chapter 1, verses 2 and 3, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. You count it joy, why? Because God works in the trials, works in the circumstances that we wouldn't have chosen, but he does them to bring about the result that he's intending in our life. And we could walk through example after example in God's word. Do you remember the story of Joseph, Old Testament, into the book of Genesis? Joseph is sold into slavery by his brothers. He ends up going into prison in Egypt. Everything looks terrible. But eventually, by the end of the book, we see that he's now second in command of all of Egypt, and God uses him as the means of saving the very people of God. In the book of Job, we see that Job has lost everything that he has. And very likely, he's one of the most wealthiest people in the world at this moment. He loses everything. But in the book of Job, he comes to a greater understanding of God, his love, his character, his purposes, and in the end, he praises God and has 10 times more than what he began with. And of course, there's no better example of God working in the midst of suffering than the cross of Jesus Christ. And just remember that any time anyone says, there's nothing good that can come of this. When Jesus dies on a cross on that Friday night, the disciples are going, there's nothing good that can come of this. But the only reason we have salvation, the only reason there's forgiveness of sins, the only reason there's hope of eternal life, the only reason we have any hope at all is because of suffering of the Son of God. It's through suffering we have life is only through the death and resurrection of Jesus. So just remember, the entire Bible, 66 books, testify of God's faithfulness to work through trials, work through pain, work through suffering, so that his purposes would be carried out and it would be for the good of his people. So if you're a believer here in Christ, you need to know whatever pain, whatever trial, whatever difficulty you're in right now, God promises he's using it for your good. We must not believe the lies of the enemy, that God has abandoned us, or that God is unfaithful, or that God is not good, or that God is not just. Because if we're not careful, then we can act just like Israel does here in Malachi. We can say, my circumstances are not that great, therefore, God does not love me. And there's a lot of people that make that jump every single day. Maybe you're here today and you think, and you just look at your life and you say, life is not how I planned it. And I think if we asked everyone to raise their hands, we'd probably all raise our hands right there. But I know some of us are going through just difficult things. Marriage is hard. Maybe you've experienced divorce. There's sickness, there's disease, there's cancer, there's pain, there's stillborns, there's tragedy, there's death. There's loss of a job, there's loss of friends, there's financial difficulty, there's persecution, and the list could go on and on and on. You just add whatever it is that you're going through on to that list, but you need to know that trials are not the absence of God's love in your life. We need to know that. That's a truth we see all throughout Scripture. They are the means in which God is working in you. Trials are not the absence of God's love in your life. Rather, they're the means in which God is working in your life. And if you miss this, you too are going to be discouraged and then become disillusioned about God and then you will begin to doubt God and move into religious skepticism. But because of God's infinite power, his infinite goodness, you can rest assured that he's using that which you would not have chosen for your good. And often that good goes well beyond you and for his glory. We do not look at our circumstances to measure God's love for us. We look to his word. That is where we look. And from his word, we understand our circumstances. Do you understand that? We start with his word. And when we know the word, that shapes how we see everything that we go through. If we start with our circumstances and read that into God's word, we will come to wrong conclusions every time. We start with the word that shapes how we see, how we view everything in this world. So how do you know then if you're skeptical of God's love at this moment? There's two things we can do. There's number one, we can look at our worship of God. We can look at our relationship with others. So those are the second and third disputes. We're just gonna walk right into those. So in Malachi chapter one, verse eight, we're gonna look um, look at our worship. And this is how Israel is worshiping God. Chapter one, verse eight. When you offer blind animals in sacrifice, is that not evil? And when you offer those that are lame or sick, is that not evil? Present that to your governor. Will he accept you or show you favor, says the Lord of hosts? So what Israel is doing here is they're, they're worshiping God out of obligation and tradition, not out of a heart of love. They, they bring the worst possible sacrifices you can imagine. Like r- Rather than honoring God with their best, just imagine this. You're looking at your flock today. And you're going, now which one do I give God? Well, that one has three legs. It's diseased. It's half dead already. Let's give that one. And and then notice he says, "Your, your, your, uh, your governor won't accept you. He won it. Why would you give it to God? But that is the means in which they are worshiping God. They are not looking at how do they honor God, but remember, they're discouraged, they're disillusioned. God's not faithful. Why should I be faithful? What does it matter? I'll just give this lamb. So let me ask you, are you skeptical of God's love? How do you worship God? Just think through, how do you worship God? Do you gather on Sunday simply out of obligation or out of a love and joy that God has saved you and forgiven you? How is it that you spend time in God's word? How is it that you go through your life each day? Are you thinking through, as Paul says, our lives are living sacrifices or is religion compartmentalized to a few different areas of your life? Do you find that you never have enough time or energy to be in God's word or spend time in prayer? You know, I never hear people say, I wanna spend more time on my phone. I wish I could have watched another Netflix show tonight. I don't ever hear people saying that, but I regularly hear people saying, I find it hard to spend time in God's word. I'm always struggling to spend time in prayer. And so I, I just simply say, why is that? Are we just giving God the leftovers? And I just encourage you to just wrestle with that. Now, what I'm about to say is what works for me, take it with a grain of salt. Um, I think we need to guard our personal time with God vigorously every day. So for me, I get up early. That works for me. Now I'm a morning person, so I understand that that's extra easy for me. So again, take it with a grain of salt. But I know that once the day begins and the kids get up and soccer practices start and school begins and I'm at work and all all the chaos of every day happens to then carve out time in the midst of that becomes increasingly difficult. So for me, it works best to say, I will prioritize God's word by getting up earlier and I can say that, that I choose to love God's word more than I choose 30 minutes more of sleep or however long that is. And then I can guard that time. And then that time in his word, in prayer, then shapes the rest of my day. Now, you don't have to do that in the morning, but I just ask you and challenge you, where do you spend that time and do you guard it? Because oftentimes we can be like like Israel. Well, I don't know. I mean, I have this sheep. I have this three minutes, oh, it got taken by another Netflix, or whatever it is. So I just encourage you, just look, how am I worshiping God each and every day? How is it that I come to gather with the people? How do I gather in table groups? How do I spend time each and every day, whether it's morning, night? You choose the time, but guard it. I do find that mornings, I think, work better for most people, because once the chaos of the day starts... Unless if you have lulls in your day, awesome. (laughs) Mine just seemed to keep going increasingly chaotic, which is good, but it's crazy. So I ask you, think about your worship of God. How are you coming to him each and every day? How do you come in times like this? Number two, look at your relationships. So look over in Malachi chapter two, verse 13. He says, in this second thing you do, you cover the Lord's altar with tears, with weeping and groaning, because, <clears throat> because he no longer regards the offering or accepts it with favor from your hand. But you say, why does he not? Because the Lord has wit- was witness between you and the wife of your youth, to whom you have been faithless, though she is your companion and your wife by covenant. So Israel says, hey, we're coming here. I'm offering you sacrifices. Why don't you do anything for us, God? And so God turns and says to them, because you're faithless to your wife, you're divorcing your wife to simply pursue your lusts and desires. And we'll get more into that in the upcoming weeks. But what we learn here and what we learn even explicitly clear in the Gospels is that God calls us to love him and to love one another as we love ourselves. In fact, Jesus said in Matthew twenty two, the greatest commandment is that we love the Lord our God with all our heart, with all our soul, our mind, and our strength. And the second commandment is like it that we love our neighbor as ourselves. And what we have here in Israel, they're not loving one another. They're not even loving the ones who have they've entered into a covenant relationship, God and their wives. They're pursuing their lust, they're pursuing their desires, they're doing what they want to do, and then they're going, God, where are you? And so we'll dig into these passages more in the upcoming weeks. So today, I just simply want you to begin examining your love and your faith in God. Does the way you love your wife, or your husband, or your church, or your children, your coworkers, your neighbors, give evidence of your love for God? Is your life one of worship? Or if you're honest, have you begun to slip into what would be called religious skepticism? Have you become apathetic in your love for God? Are you in a spiritual slumber? Are you going through the motions while your heart is slowly hardening over time? That's what Malachi is confronting us with. That's what he's doing to Israel. He's exposing the hardness of their hearts. He's doing that to us, and he's wanting us to wake up from any spiritual slumber that we are in so that we would say, okay, so so what do we do then? Or maybe you're here and you say, okay, that's not me. I don't feel like I'm being apathetic. I don't feel like I am slumbering or, or moving into skepticism. So then maybe the question's not, what do I do, but how do I keep from going into that? So if you're in it, what do you do to to get out of this religious skeptical heart? Or if you're not in that, how do we make sure that we don't go down that path? So that moves us into our last section where God sends a messenger. If you read in chapter 1, verse 1, we read the word Malachi. It says, the oracle of the word of the Lord to Israel by Malachi. And the word Malachi means messenger. Messenger. And the word messenger is actually really important throughout this book. In fact, if you look at Malachi chapter 3, verse 1, just a page over, we read this. Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple, and the messenger of the covenant on whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. So, So get this. Malachi is a messenger sent to the people of God telling them a messenger is coming and that messenger is coming to tell you about another messenger who has this covenant with them. Do you see it? There's a messenger talking about a messenger talking about a messenger. So Malachi is coming to point the people forward in their thinking and what we see is that in the new testament jesus is this covenant carrying messenger the one who establishes the new covenant and what we'll see is john the baptist is the one who we're told by jesus himself is the fulfillment of this text, and he prepares the way for israel for people to know jesus is the son of god he is the covenant carrying messenger And so John comes preaching a message of repentance to prepare the way for Jesus. The problem of Israel and all of humanity is that we're sinful. We have have 39 books in the Old Testament. Israel, or Adam and Eve, in chapter 3 is removed from the garden because of sin. And we go through the entire book and we get to the end of Malachi and it's like, have we improved at all? Like it doesn't seem like there's this real big progression that's happened that now God's people love him and they're obedient. Rather, it looks like they're about to be removed again. In fact, they were in Babylon. Now they're back in the promised land. Have we we gone forward at all? What we go through in the Old Testament is not only do we learn about God's faithfulness and his justice and his love and his peace and his patience for his people, but we learn that we have a sin problem. that we're all born with this. We're all born in rebellion to God, whether you're Jew or Gentile, meaning whether you have breath, we're born in rebellion to God that we resist him. We don't want to obey him. We don't want to love him. We don't want to follow the very things that he calls us to do. So we need, what we need is a new heart. We need our, our sinful heart to be taken away, to be given a new, cleansed heart, a heart that loves God, a heart that desires God, a heart that wants to follow God. And so that's what we see. This new messenger of the covenant, which Malachi is pointing to, saying, guys, you're missing it. Everything in the old covenant is pointing to a much greater covenant that's going to come in Jesus Christ. And Jesus is going to come, the Son of God, die on a cross. Three days later, rise again so he would prove he's victorious over sin, death, and Satan. And when we believe in him, we're forgiven. And his spirit now lives within us that we'd be inclined to follow him, to obey him, to worship him. And then what we learn even is that now there's this new temple and it's called the church which God dwells and promises in the new heavens and new earth, he will be with his people for all of eternity, never to be separated. So what Malachi is pointing is saying, look, all of these promises, they're ultimately pointing to Jesus who will bring fulfillment to them in a much greater way than you could have ever imagined. But Malachi doesn't only point to the first coming of Jesus. He also points to the second coming of Jesus. So if you have your Bibles, look at Matthew, nope, Malachi, chapter 4, verse 1. And here he says, For behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven, When all the arrogant and all evildoers will be stubble, the day that is coming shall set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. But for you who fear my name, the son of righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings. You shall go out leaping like calves from the stall, and you shall tread down the wicked, for they will be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day when I act, says the Lord of hosts. Remember the law of my servant Moses, the statutes and rules that I commanded him at Horeb for all of Israel. Behold, I will send you Elijah, the prophet. That's that messenger we're looking for, the first one. I will send you Elijah, the prophet, before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with the decree of utter destruction." So what we understand is that Jesus is the long-awaited king, not just Zerubbabel, but ultimately we're looking for the greater David, the one that we've been promised all the way back in 2 Samuel 7, looking for this king who will rule and reign over his people, who will take all of the nations, those who have not worshipped him, those who have rejected him, those who have said, I don't want this God, and he says he will come And in his wrath, they will be thrown in like an oven where they will be judged and turned into ash and stubble. And then he says, but for those, but those who love God, those who repent and believe in him, they'll be like calves leaping with joy coming out of their stalls. And so the prophet, he's he's literally holding out two destinies before Israel. He's holding out two destinies before, before you and me. And he says, when Jesus comes, when this greater covenant messenger comes, will you experience his infinite wrath or will you experience his infinite joy? Will you be like the ash blown in the wind or will you be like the calf leaping for joy? Which one will you be? And he leaves it out there. This is how the book is ending. In verse 4, Malachi says, remember the law of my servant Moses. And what he's doing there, he's saying, the one who repents, the one who loves, obeys God. Faith in God obeys God as it waits for the promises of God. So he says, as you you wait for this messenger coming, repent, believe, obey, and hope. That's the pattern that we have. Faith in God obeys God as it waits for the promises of God. Jesus died on the cross and saved us from our sins so we would be made new. We now live for him. What Malachi is saying and what we see all throughout the New Testament, obedience is not optional for the Christian life. One cannot say, I love Jesus and yet willingly continue to disobey him. Romans 8, 29 says, you've been saved so you'd be made into the image of Jesus. He literally says, you've been predestined to be conformed to the image of the Son of God. Christianity is not about living however we want. It's about living for God. And the beauty of it is he gives us his spirit to live in us, that he would direct us, that he would guide us, that he would lead us into his word, that we would know how to live. And so now notice how the book ends Lest I come and strike the land with a decree of destruction. So you got to feel the weight of these words. Malachi looks to the people. He corrects six disputes, six arguments that he's walked them through. And he comes to the end where he said, Look, there's a messenger who's coming, and he's going to tell you about another messenger. And what we know is there's two comings the first coming Jesus goes to the cross and dies and rises again where he's now at the right hand of God second coming he comes again where he will judge the nations and gather all who have believed in him and so so he's now saying when he comes and we know because where we stand in history on this side of the cross we know he's talking about the second coming when he comes again how will God find you will you have believed in God will you have trusted him will you have lived for him Or will you not? Because he says, lest I come and strike the land with the decree of destruction. Lest I destroy you. The The message of Malachi is repent, obey God, and look forward to the king who is coming. I hope you see that we're in a very similar place to the people of Malachi. They're being directed at this point to look back at the promises of God in the Old Testament looking forward to the coming of this king, this messenger of the covenant. Now we, we stand on this side of the cross. So we have even greater clarity. We have an advantage over those that God is speaking to in Israel because they didn't, they didn't know exactly how it's coming about. But we have seen the cross through God's word. So we know he has come. We now know exactly what this next one will look like. So just as Israel was told, Look to the promises of God and hope in God. So now we look to the promises of God, but we don't necessarily go all the way back to the exodus, although we can. We go back to the cross. The clearest display of God's love for us. And we go, because God has sent his son to die on a cross, we know he will come again to gather his people. Now we wait, like Malachi's people do, we do, for the coming of the King. But there's not two more comings, there's one coming, and this coming, he will come to gather the people together forever. Now, for some of you, you might say, this sounds harsh. You're telling me that God is telling them and us, you either believe in this God, or you suffer the wrath of his judgment. But I want you to think of it like this. Malachi is the last book in the Old Testament. 400 years go by before the book of Matthew comes. 400 years for people to hear the message of Malachi. 400 years for this message to sit deep within their hearts. For them to be ready for when Jesus comes. 400 years of God patiently enduring them, not pouring forth his wrath as he could at any moment, but sparing his people so they would hear the message and be prepared for the covenant king. Now we stand on this side of the cross 2,000 years removed from the cross where God is patient and merciful. So when people say, well, this just sounds really harsh. Well, let's just frame this a little bit. God created us in his image, made us to worship him. We have willfully rebelled against him, rejected him. He then, through this redemptive history, eventually sent his own son to pay the price for our sins so we could be saved, forgiven, adopted in his family, made like his son, treated equally with his son for all of eternity and a new heavens and new earth. And he gives us 2,000 years to hear the message, believe, repent, and hope in him. Is he harsh? I have a hard time getting around that. If it's you or me, we would have poured out wrath back in Genesis 3. World done. But he's slow to anger. He's good. He's kind. And just as, as Malachi is pointing them, hey, there's a, there's a messenger who's coming who's going to prepare the way for the king. So there's a people now who prepare the way for the king, and that's you and me. The church now is the messengers of God. We are the ambassadors of God, representing his rule and his kingship here on earth. That we would share the gospel so more people would hear the message. So Revelation seven comes true where it says, people from every tribe, tongue, nation, and language will be gathered around the throne for all of eternity because our God is faithful to save. Because he's patient and he's slow to anger and he's gracious and merciful. And so I just encourage you as we come into this book and as we'll be spending more time in the upcoming weeks, ask God to examine your heart. Are there areas where you become skeptical? Are there areas that you become discouraged and then you become disillusioned and you're now beginning to doubt God's purposes and his promises and his character? I encourage you to repent. Do so so that we'll be ready for the day that when our king returns and that we'd be faithful in our relationships around us and that we would share the gospel of truth to our neighbors and to those across the world. What I'm going to do is pray and the team is going to come up and then we'll take communion. Father, Father, you pursue us. You don't leave us in our religious skepticism. You don't leave us discouraged. You don't leave us disillusioned. You don't leave us in our doubt, but God, you pursue. You lovingly pursue us, and ultimately, you do so so through the sending of your Son, the greatest messenger, the greatest prophet, the greatest sacrifice, the greatest priest, the greatest king, the one who saves us completely, So, we would have everlasting hope. And so, God, if there is anyone in here who is spiritually slumbering, God, wake us up. God, wake us up that we would see whatever sin is moving us into apathy, that we would repent and trust in you and live for you today. We'd be committed to worshiping you with every part of our life. We'd guard our time in your word. Husbands would faithfully love their wives. Wives would faithfully love their husbands. We would shepherd our children. We would care for those around us. We would present the gospel to those in our neighborhoods as missionaries and ambassadors and those who love those who are made in the image of God. God, confront our hearts today. Do not let us leave unpricked. But God, expose to us what needs to be repented of. Expose to us any area of sense that we would confess, we would acknowledge that you are king over every aspect of your life and that that there is only hope in your son, Jesus. May we know that truth, may that truth shape us and inform everything that we do. In your name, Jesus, Amen. amen.